Good morning, church. Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 105? The scripture reading this morning will be Psalm 105, verses 23 through 38, and then verses 42 through 45. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. And then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. And so he brought out his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they may keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for your word. You are faithful. You are good. You are holy. You are just. And as we journey through the ten plagues this morning, the text just screams and shouts that from the very words, you, O Lord, are the sovereign one. You are the good God who cares for his people. Guide us as we go to the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 6. The text from Psalm 105 encompasses these passages that we're going to look at today, but Exodus 6, and as you do, uh, yeah, Exodus 6, we'll start in verse 28. As I stated, uh, don't let the notes scare you this morning, but there are some things that I want to highlight through that chart on the first page. Recently, well, at the beginning of the summer, we had hail damage. I know some of you could relate. Our car and our house, the car had to be, re or the house had to be re-roofed. The car did too, by the way. Yes, uh, new roofs on both, uh, gutters on the house, etc. Took care of that, worked with insurance, and all the contractors, and that was all done. It was wonderful. That was beginning of the summer. Three weeks ago, my wife went out shopping. There wasn't a sky, cloud in the sky. And she called and said, uh, I just got into a hailstorm the size of baseballs, and our windshield is cracked in three places. And I said, you weren't in the car, were you? And she goes, no. 
so we had another car to fix. And I thought through that in light of the plagues, and I thought, you know, there are three lessons that I'm, I'm learning through this. First of all, I've learned do not park near us in a hailstorm. <laughs> Secondly, I've purchased an inflatable mattress, and I'm putting it over the car anytime uh, it's parked anywhere outside of a building. Third, I hope I'm learning patience and contentment. I don't care to experience another one of these anytime soon. The ten plagues were a way in which the Lord is going to demonstrate who he is, not only to the Egyptians, but also to the Israelites. And I want you to see that as we move through. But this whole scene starts in 628. If you've been with us, last week we saw that Moses took upon himself, along with his sidekick Aaron, his three-year-old brother, to, to go to Pharaoh and ask for the Israelites to be released. He did not follow instruction from the Lord and got himself in a huge mess. And not only that, Pharaoh then turns and he takes it out on the Israelites, and the Israelites then take it out on Moses. And God has to take Moses and he says, listen, I am the Lord. Don't you forget that. I told you what's going to transpire. And in 628, it says, When the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, notice where we are now, we're not in Midian, he said to him, I am the Lord. There it is again. Let me remind you, Moses, before we start this little journey, again, who I am. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I'm telling you. <laughs> you better get it right this time, Moses. All right. But Moses said before the Lord, since I speak with difficulty, why should Pharaoh listen to me? This is the third time Moses has said, I don't speak very well. For a guy who doesn't speak very well, he has a lot of words to say. Really, Moses? I, I, I kind of wonder if he just needs a little more affirmation now that he's in Egypt and he's looking over in the distance and there is Pharaoh's headquarters. And in verse 1, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron is to speak to Pharaoh that he must release the Israelites from his land. But I, watch this, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And although I will multiply my signs, and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will reach into Egypt and bring out my regiments, my people, the Israelites from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. They will know. When we go through the plagues, six times the Lord will say, this is so that you will know that I am the Lord. We'll see that here shortly. But he says, listen, this is so they will know. I extend my hand over Egypt. They will bring them out. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Just a couple things as we set the scene and in going into these 10 plagues. Again, Moses has a, one more excuse, and I can't imagine, but I suspect the Lord is growing a little tired of the excuses. Moses, I told you what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, and I told you exactly how it's going to transpire. So are there any other questions? All right, here we go. Remember, Pharaoh wasn't asked to volunteer. Pharaoh was told, you will do this. This is your role. And we're told in verse 1 that Pharaoh will be come 
not a God, but he is going to be the representative of God. This is significant because as we go through the Ten Commandments, at the end of the day, it's a battle between God and God incarnate, the son of Ra, the Pharaoh. Ra is the God of sun. He's the father of the gods in the Egyptian mindset. He is also the great creator. And you have God saying, no, I am God. Pharaoh's saying, I am God. And the two are coming together here. Remember Pharaoh's response when Moses said, the Lord told me you need to let the, the Israelites go. What did Pharaoh say? I don't, I don't even know this God that you talk about. What are you referring to? Because Pharaoh is the embodiment of the ent entire deity in many ways. He's what holds this together. And yet Moses is, is going to be given the great privilege to represent God doesn't that blow your mind that God would use a creature to have himself represented on this planet? 2 Corinthians 5, we, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Similar to Moses, we are ambassadors, we're representatives, which should scare your socks off <laughs> in many ways. It's also amazing and gracious for God to do that, but it's also very scary. Notice in verse 3 through 5, as Moses is told to go, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really how eloquent. That's the irony here. It doesn't matter how eloquent Moses and Aaron are. Moses is so concerned about he can't speak well. Moses, it doesn't matter how eloquent you are. It doesn't matter how strong the arguments are or the logic that you're going to use because unless God is involved in changing the heart of Pharaoh, nothing is going to transpire. And notice it says that God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. This is significant. The heart for the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, is, is the controlling factor. In fact, in the deity in Ra and Horus, two gods in the Egyptian deity line or whatever, the, the, the heads that they have of the gods, the heart for Ra and Horus was that which holds all things together. And remember, Pharaoh is the representative of Ra. So in other words, to harden his heart is stating, now I'm in charge here, not you, Pharaoh. Riken in his commentary says, therefore, by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God was making a theological point. He was proving that he alone is sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside the purpose of his will, not even the heart of a king. <laughs> Pharaoh, his heart is going to be hardened, and the text tells us, look at verse 4, they are going to see great acts of judgment. That term could also be translated vindication. God has his name to uphold, his reputation, first and foremost. Secondly, he is going to vindicate his name and his people. And third, he's going to deliver his people. And so judgment is looming. And then finally we're told when Moses and Aaron finally go there in verse 6, we're told Moses is 80 years of age. 40 years he spent growing up in Egypt. 40 years he tended sheep in Midian. And now these last 40 years of his life, he's going to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. I love the uh, quote from D.L. Moody, the pastor uh, of the Moody Church. 
uh, in Chicago in the 1800s. Listen to this. He says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody, and 40 years showing God what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. <laughs> Isn't that great? And it's one of the things I love about CBF. I mean, look around. We have all ages represented. We need the vitality, the strength of the young people. I love it. But we also need the experience and wisdom of those who are a little bit more seasoned. <laughs> you have, Moses has had 80 years of education in God's school to learn, to, to, to understand what it means to, to lead Maybe not people, but sheep. <laughs> and all of those experiences weren't just by chance, just by happenstance. God was grooming Moses to this point. Eighty years. I am sure there were times when Moses was out tending those sheep in the desert. Where are you, Lord? What in the world? This fugitive of the law. And so we come to here in 714, the beginning of the 10 plagues. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally we go verse by verse, but one of the things that you can miss when you study the plagues is to see some overarching principles, some patterns. And I want you to see that this morning because it's very, it's, it's vital to the theology of Exodus, but also I would argue the entire Old and New Testament. And so let's look at these. We're going to look at why these 10 and why are they ordered the way they are and so we have a chart here to show you of the 10 plagues they are also listed there in your notes the first of these of course is the nile is turned to blood and it's just not the nile but it's all the tributaries that was the life source for egypt many of their gods were linked directly to the nile and it turns to blood it's so bad that the fish die so red lobster's out of business. And, and you can only imagine the stench from that. The text tells us that. Uh, we had some friends of ours growing up. They had a couple acre pond and they were treating it for algae and they, they put too much chemical in. <laughs> and the next day he said the smell was awful. There were dead fish everywhere. That's the idea here, except this is blood. So you also have that taking place here as well. The fish dying and the, all the tributaries. Seven days later, we have the frogs that come. And it tells us they can't even sleep. They're in the bed. They can't eat. They're in the, in the kitchen. There is no peace anywhere from the frogs. I mean, you can only eat so many frog legs, right? This is not good. <laughs> and then when God relents, they all die. And you can imagine the stench from that as well, from all the frogs. We know that this does not soften Pharaoh's heart. And so the next plague is gnats or mosquitoes. Some translate it as lice. I don't care how you slice it, it ain't good, right? Psalm 78 tells us that this plague, the Egyptians were eaten and devoured by them. Fourth of July, we celebrated outside. I don't care how much mosquito spray you put on my wife, she gets eaten alive. She's so sweet. They don't touch me, but they, they could carry her away. And this is the idea here in Psalm 78. They were eaten by these mosquitoes, these gnats. And then we go to flies, if that wasn't bad enough. 
And this is the first time we're told that the Lord will protect the Israelites. They're exempt. Then we come to the cattle, the livestock, which appears to be a form of anthrax. There's a curse on all of the livestock. Israelites' livestock is protected, not the Egyptians. And in fact, at the end of the scene, Pharaoh will go verify that the, Egypt, the Israelites' livestock were preserved. And he, in his horror, he finds indeed they were. Then we go to the boils. This is the first plague that affects them physically, the, the, these blisters or sores. And it's not just the people, it's also animals here that we see. And then we get to the hailstorm. There is more attention given to this plague, apart from the death of the firstborn, than any of the other plagues. And we'll get to that in a moment, but it's very significant, this event, and I can relate to this one. But far more, Egyptians, rain was foreign. Seldom did they have rain. So you can imagine the fear and the horror of seeing the storm arise. And it's the first plague where Egyptians, the text tells us some of the Egyptians feared God. Interesting, isn't it? In this event, and the Israelites are protected once again. But if the hailstorm it destroyed the crops that were about to be harvested. The next plague destroys the, the crops that are just beginning to grow, and that's the swarm of locusts. And uh, <laughs> you think we might relate to that in light of this season we've been in, but nothing green remains from this plague. It's interesting when the Lord releases or eases up off the judgment, the locusts, we're told, are thrown into the Red Sea and die. That's a foreshadow. Right? We know what happens to Pharaoh and his army. The ninth is the darkness. And uh, in fact, the ninth plague is interesting because Moses never approaches Pharaoh. He just unleashes this plague. And the last one, as we all know, is the death of the firstborn. This is where the Passover originates. The firstborn of everything, not just human beings. And it is this point where Pharaoh says, Go. Just get out of Dodge. I'm, I'm sick of dealing with you. Well, we look at these 10 plagues, and there's quite a list. It's gone now, but you see it. Um, you look at the 10 plagues, and there's some observations I want you to see as we look at these. First of all, the 10 plagues have, appear to be a direct correlation with the gods of Egypt. What do I mean by that? Let me show you just a couple examples here, some slides to show you. Uh, the first of these, if we could show those of the gods, uh, to your top you see Hapi. He is the god of the floods of the Nile. Interesting. His face looks like a hippopotamus. And the, the Nile is corrupted. Hapi, that's a real problem, especially when you see that Poppy is also considered the father of the gods. There's an overlap between Ra and Hathor, and these gods interchange. Hathor is represented as a cow. It's a holy cow. Yes, and she was seen as one of the rulers of the deities. Again, it's God saying, I am God, not your gods that you worship. Let me give you one more. And, and kids, you're going to love this one. This next one is, looks like a frog. It is a frog. They, they said that Haket is the goddess of fertility, and she is represented as a frog. Where did the text tell us the frogs were? Even in the beds. <laughs> Interesting. She was believed to have played an important role in the creation of the world. 
And so you look at these 10 plagues, and Egypt had more than 10 gods, that's for sure. But what we see is God saying to the Egyptians, I am God, not those that you worship. Second thing you'll notice, that as you look at the 10 plagues, the magicians, those cohorts, those counselors of Pharaoh are able to reproduce plagues one and two, but by plague three, they cannot do it. In fact, I want you to see something in the text. Look at chapter, uh, let's, let's go, I want you to look at, uh, well, we don't want to go to this one. Let's go to 819. Look at Exodus 819. This is in the third plague. The magicians said to Pharaoh, it is the finger of God. Wow. Yeah, we can turn water to blood or make it look like it has. We can bring up some frogs. We can't do this. And by plague six, they're affected by the boils. They can't even approach Pharaoh. Pharaoh is now on his own. He doesn't even have his magicians standing there to assist him. There's another thing that we see when we look at the 10 plagues, and that is Pharaoh develops theologically. Not well, but he still develops theologically. Remember in 5-2, he just says, who is this God? I don't know who he is, right? By plague 2, look at chapter 8, verse 8. Bear with us here. 8-8, eight, eight. it says, Pharaoh summoned Moses. He said, pray to the Lord that he may take away. Ooh, what does that imply? Moses, or Pharaoh, understands that you can pray to this Lord and that he is capable of doing something. So he's moved from an atheist on, when it comes to Yahweh to at least agnostic at best. And then the kicker is in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. At the end of plague 7, this is the hailstorm, Pharaoh sent and summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned. Wow. This is the great king of Egypt, God incarnate. And he says, I have sinned. He also says this after plague eight as well. But seven, we're going to see is, is the watershed in all of this. And he says, I have sinned. He says, and not only that, he states in verse 27, the Lord is righteous. And so as we look at these 10 plagues, you see this development that occurs in, in Pharaoh's thinking. Also in the process, Pharaoh seeks to negotiate with Moses, doesn't he? He says in, after, in the middle of plague four, Moses, you can take the people and worship in the land. No, we didn't ask to worship in Egypt. We asked to worship outside. Remember the, the request? Later, Pharaoh will say, okay, you can go, but only the men. And Moses says, no, 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 it's women and children. Later, in plague nine or eight, no, it is nine. In plague nine, Pharaoh says, you can go, men, women, children, but not your livestock. You don't negotiate with God. That's the point. And some Egyptians, as we see in the midst of the plagues, fear the Lord. In fact, in plague eight, they're begging Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And apart from plague te 10, as I mentioned, plague seven is very significant. Well, you say, well, thank you, Hophidetz. I really appreciate that observations of the plagues. What does that mean? What are the implications? So let me give you a few. They're in your notes on the backside of that sheet that you have. First of these is the plague service and answer to Pharaoh's question, 
who is the Lord? If you're taking notes, write down Exodus 10, verse 1. 10, 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his officials, in order that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I made fools of the Egyptians, and what signs I have done, so that, why? You may know that I am the Lord. He's going to answer Pharaoh's question, who am I? Well, let me tell you who I am. I'm greater than any God you serve. In fact, I'm greater than you. He also says to the Israelites, lest you wonder, I am God Almighty. And so the plague served to answer the question. And as I mentioned, six times in the plagues, it's the, the Lord says, this is, you'll know that I am the Lord. Uh, you're sitting here this morning the demons know who the Lord is and they tremble. Do you know the Lord? <laughs> Do you have a personal relationship with him? The cognitive is insufficient. In other words, just my knowing that he exists, that's one thing. There has to be a heart change. And this is what we're going to see is the problem with Pharaoh. And sadly, I would argue, the Lord should not have needed to display his power to the Israelites or to the Egyptians According to Psalm 19, according to Romans 1, they only needed to look at the creation and say, ah, this is our God. He is right. The, 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 the text tells us we can know he's righteous and we also know that he's a wrathful God. So we didn't need these displays, but God saw fit to do it. Secondly, the plagues demonstrate that the Lord is superior to the Egyptians and their deities. We already talked about this, but chapter 12, verse 12, is a very significant statement. I want you to see this. Sorry to do the Bible drill today, but Exodus 12, 12, the Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Did you catch that? They're done. I'm done. And you say, what do you mean by all the gods of Egypt? Remember I told you Pharaoh is, the, the, is Ra incarnate in the Egyptian minds, the sun god. The last three plagues deal with darkness. The locusts cover the land, it says it's black. Darkness is on the, the plague nine. And when does the angel of death come in plague 10? In the night. God is superior. He is victorious. And so the plagues demonstrate that the Lord is superior. Third, the plagues testify to the Lord's power over all of creation. There are many scholars, even so-called evangelicals, I, would, I have real problems with who try to dismiss these ten plagues and say, well, these were natural causes. If they were natural causes, why would Pharaoh freak out? Why would the Egyptians cry out to God? And if this was just, oh, well, that's another hailstorm. Oh, yes, the, the red tide comes in and it kills the water and the frogs die. This is more than that. There's no way to explain. And it was to be a sign that this is supernatural. And the Lord told Moses, now God can use nature to demonstrate his power as he often does. But there's ultimately no explanation for this, especially, I would argue, in such a small window of time. Fourth, and this is key here. As we look at Pharaoh in these plagues, refusal to repent when the Lord judges leads to anger, despair, and even madness. 
In chapter 14, when Pharaoh sees that the Israelites are gone, he says, he asks a very stupid question. He goes, what have we done? Well, you let them go. You remember that? (laughs) It's interesting, you know, you listen to certain politicians and movie stars and professional athletes, and sometimes you you listen to their reasoning, not all, but I'm saying some who've bought into so much of the lies of this world, and, and you think, that isn't even logical what you're saying. Are you serious? But that's what sin does. Sin leads to madness, and you see that with Pharaoh. And you young people, careful. It will come back to roost. And that's the the case with Pharaoh. And that leads us to number five. Sincere remorse may not be genuine repentance. The ultimate test, I would argue, is one's claim of faith is perseverance. I think one of the saddest comments in the ten plagues is found in chapter 9, verse 30, when Moses says, For you, Pharaoh, and your officials, I know that you do not hear the Lord God. Wow. I I don't believe you. I I know you don't listen to him. After 9-11, church attendance soared across this country, especially in New York City. In fact, it was estimated within the first couple weeks, attendance grew by 25% in churches around this land. However, attendance subsided within weeks, and after a year, churches from coast to coast reported that their pews are back to the normal occupancy or even less. (laughs) Systematic theologian Burkhoff makes this statement, moreover, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance The two are but different aspects of the same turning, a turning away from sin to the direction of God. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. You and I all know individuals who, oh, I'm so sorry I did that. Really? If you're truly sorry, where's the the actions? Remember my my parents saying that. Are you truly sorry? Then don't do it again, right? Right? And Pharaoh, if you're truly repentant, then let them go. And that leads us to Pharaoh. This is point six of your notes. And this is a huge theological debate, but I can just hear it. Well, if Pharaoh had no excuse, God's going to harden his heart. How is that fair? (laughs) I mean, after all, the Lord stated he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The guy's doomed from the get-go. Well, I have two arguments for this. First of all, Pharaoh hardens his own heart first. This is why I love looking at the plagues collectively. In the first five plagues, first five, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Plague six, we're told God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Plague seven, Pharaoh again hardens his heart. Seven we'll get to in a minute. And then 8, 9, and 10, it's, it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. In other words, Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent. He does not. And he, God does what he stated he does in Romans 1. If you want to toy with sin, eventually the worst thing that God could do is to let you over to sin. Fine, Pharaoh. You've hardened your heart. Now I will harden it. You have rejected me. And what we see as we look at these plagues is first and foremost... Pharaoh has no excuse. He's the one who's hardened his heart 
to the things of the Lord. And yes, then God takes that and further hardens his heart. Secondly, Pharaoh refuses to heed the words of the Lord. In the first seven plagues, there is a line that God gives to Moses. He says, when you go to Pharaoh, you say, thus saith the Lord. In plague eight, it's missing. Plague nine, it's missing. Plague 10, it's missing. So what's going on? Pharaoh's told, this is what God has told you to do. And what does Pharaoh say? I will not listen to the Lord. God has spoken to us here. If you refuse to accept, not bend your knee before a Lord, then God is going to judge ultimately. That's the whole point of Pharaoh. God has spoken and yet Moses will not respond. And so plague seven, interestingly, this plague that spans 23 verses, twice as long as the average plague airtime that's been given, is extremely important. It has the longest statement from God. It's, to me, it's the turning point. It's interesting, it's seven. But here you have Moses, you have reached, or excuse me, Pharaoh, you have reached the point of no return. I have given you chance after chance after chance to respond to my words, and you have not listened. You've even recognized you're a sinner and that I'm righteous, and yet you will not repent and come to me. And consequently, Pharaoh, I'm going to harden your heart. I'm done. And in fact, Plague seven is the only one that's of the plagues that mentions not once but twice Pharaoh is stubborn or hardens his heart. It's this, this point of rejection. And up to plague seven, in fact, the Israelites are seldom mentioned in the first seven plagues. But in eight, nine, and ten, you will see few references to the Egyptians. Why? The focus was here. God in his grace is trying to woo Pharaoh back to him or to him. Pharaoh, you had an opportunity, and you blew it. And God knew all along, but he's giving Pharaoh an opportunity. The last three plagues, as we mentioned, will all deal with darkness. Why? Because Pharaoh is no longer a hurdle to overcome. God has dealt with this so-called God of the light, Ra. Pharaoh is out of the picture, and God is sovereign. Isn't that amazing? We miss that and sometimes when we're just, we study the bark on the trees and this morning just coming to looking at the forest as a whole to see what is transpiring here. The 10 plagues was a, a showdown between Pharaoh and God and God won. And number seven in your notes, even in the midst of the plagues, God shows his care for Israel. The Lord promises to never leave us nor forsake us as he did the Israelites he didn't say he'd take the pain away. He didn't say you wouldn't suffer. He said, you're going to have valleys in life, but I'll walk through the valleys, and I will protect you, and I will care for you. And that's what we see here. Eight, Israelites, or Israel's deliverance from slavery is due entirely to the faithfulness of the Lord to his covenant with the patriarchs. God said it. I, I alone am the one who will deliver you. I mean, there's no other explanation. You're going to tell me a, a fugitive of the law who's been for 40 years tending sheep, a nobody, <laughs> is going to come back and, and, and take and lead an entire nation to escape the greatest world power of the time? That's God and only God. That's not Moses. 
we've already seen Moses has his own warts, and we're going to see more of those as we go along. Yeah, there's some great strengths in Moses, but he's just like us, isn't he? He wasn't some stellar guy. It's because God saw fit to use him for his glory. Interesting in number nine in your notes, witnessing the plagues was to serve as a testimony of God's mercy and grace to Israelites and subsequent generations. Exodus 10.1, the text I read earlier, it's so the Lord says to Moses, I'm doing all this. You might tell your children and grandchildren. Isn't that great? The 10 plagues become a very important object lesson. Get out the flannel graph because you don't want to miss this. We see it in Psalm 105, the text that was read in Acts, in Stephen's defense, he refers to the plagues. That was God's handiwork in the midst of it all. Those of you who are grandparents this morning, what events in your life do you need to record for your children and your grandchildren to say, this is God's hand. I want you to see this. Ron Brake just wrote a book that uh, shares his journey and, and what God has done for his kids and his grandkids. I love it. We have a clock in our house and it reads, and everything give thanks, First Thessalonians 5. We bought that clock a year before I was unexpectedly fired, terminated. That clock, it's not the most gorgeous clock, but it's a reminder every time I see it, God, you are faithful. And in everything, we have to give thanks. And so perhaps you as a young person or young parent, you're raising, you have some wee ones. Do it now. <laughs> I don't know what the object is. Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a painting. You need to have it, uh, not a shrine, but a place in the house that says, that is to remind us all God is faithful. And to these Israelites, those 10 plagues are a continual reminder. God says, you need to remind your children, I am the one who made the fools of the Egyptians. I am the one who is the Lord, not the Egyptians. I am the one who brought you out of slavery after 400 years. I am God Almighty. And so you see these lessons that are gleaned from the plagues and just three applications there in your notes. First of all, we need to praise the Lord that we serve the one who is supreme. The sovereignty of God over all things drives out fear, doubt, and worry. The theological truth allows us to rest in life's greatest storms, to find peace in the most adverse circumstances, and to embrace joy in the face of life's severe troubles. <laughs> no pharaoh or president will offer this. No political party or philosophical system comes even close. No religious practice or miracle drug can suffice. In fact, Psalm 89 is correct. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heaven beings is like the Lord? Praise his name. So the next time you see a frog, praise the Lord. There was only one, right? Praise the Lord. Secondly, God's sovereignty allows for human moral freedom and responsibility. We need to ask the Lord to soften our hearts to hear, understand, love, and obey him. No one can ultimately blame God, their upbringing, life's 
particular circumstances, or according to James, even Satan, for rejecting the Lord. Similar to Pharaoh, there are no excuses. And God's grace is extended to us, especially as a people living in this great country. God is continuing to, to extend his grace, but there is a point, like Pharaoh, when he'll say enough. You respond to me or you don't, but I extend grace. And this leads us to point C. The Lord will not submit to human judgment, but will show grace and mercy to whomever he wills without needing to explain his actions. You know, that there were even Egyptians that turned to the Lord in the midst of the plagues shows what a gracious and loving God we serve, isn't it? If I was God, I would have been like, outside of Goshen, fry, baby. That'd been it. We're done. No. Pink says in this great quote there at the bottom of your notes, divine sovereignty is not the sovereignty of a tyrannical despot, but the exercised pleasure of one who is infinitely wise and good because God is infinitely wise. He cannot err, and because he's infinitely righteous, he will not do wrong. That is our God. And so, in this blitzkrieg through the ten plagues this morning, leaving a little bit of the verse by verse, and we'll return to that next week, I thought it was important that this morning we step back a bit and look at the big picture and see this is what God is doing. This is a cosmic battle. By the way, the battle's still going on, but God has already won. He is in charge, for he says, I am who I am. Father, we look at these 10 plagues and we're reminded that you are the all-powerful one. No human being, no political system can stand up against you. And Father, we thank you that you in your grace would come down and extend to us an opportunity to have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Lord, in the midst of the cross and all the agony as he took on our sin, you did that so that we could have our sin paid for and that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, perhaps there's someone this morning that's sitting here saying, yeah, like Pharaoh, I'm a sinner. I recognize who God is, but I don't have a relationship with him. Lord, I pray that today they would bend their knee. For those of us who know your son as our personal savior, may this week we be reminded once again, we serve a sovereign God. That is you. It's not Ra, it's not Hathor, it's not Bess. It's not Isis. It's, it's none of these other gods that the Egyptians worshipped. We serve you, O Lord, the great I am. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.